You're listening to Your Music, Your Business, a podcast helping you to explore the business behind your music. Hello all and welcome back to Your Music, Your Business. Today I'm joined by Zach, the owner and artist manager of Voice Vice Royalty, currently managing Alice Ivy and Poppy Rose, as well as the Australian and New Zealand label manager at MNRK or Monarch Music Group, one of the world's largest consolidated independent record labels. Welcome, Zach. What a mouthful of an introduction. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I apologize. Between the dual roles and the acronyms, it's um, it's a lot to get through. But yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. And yes, I, I went to go and try that a second time. I was like, we're not even gonna try i think that's the music industry though in a nutshell everyone has multiple jobs yes, <laughs> we'd love yeah, to see absolutely. it <laughs> um now i have a lot i want to cover with you today zach but firstly mm-hmm. i wanted to start where i know best which is artist management what are some of the most unexpected challenges that you're currently facing with your artists very good question um and something that you know i think i've been reflecting on um, with respect to my roster over the last couple years. At the present moment, I think the challenges facing artists and artist managers really depends on what stage of their career your artists are at. Um, I manage two artists, each of whom are at different points in their respective careers. And whilst there's certainly some overlap, each of them is also facing unique challenges. So for an artist like Poppy Rose, who's still emerging or at a developing stage in her career, the challenges that she's facing are fairly common across the industry and uh, the source of a lot of conversation and contemplation in the artist management community and management circles at the moment. And that's how to cut through the noise and achieve that breakout moment and advance to the next stage in their careers. Um, And I think there are myriad factors that are impeding this process. Um, In the aftermath of the global disruptions we experienced in the last few years, we're seeing a stark downturn in the ratings and listenership and the waning influence of some of the foundational radio networks that have traditionally played an enormous role in platforming new artists in Australia. Um, We've also seen the decimation of the local music press, which has been probably most pronounced at the grassroots end of the media. Things like music blogs, street press, volunteer journalism. Um, What has survived in the Australian music press is unsurprisingly like the big global brands. And for the most part, they have gone in a paola kind of a direction. Mm. And whilst we can't really fault them, I think it's it's forgivable given the strains that have been placed on their industry. That has effectively locked out a lot of artists that don't have the financial means to pay to play. Mm. Um, we've also seen live music venues closing down en masse, again, particularly the smaller independent venues that provide like crucial first opportunities for emerging artists to build audiences and develop their craft, um, coupled with ongoing festival cancellations, festival closures and festival downsizing, including, I guess, frighteningly, some of our biggest and longest running and most established festival brands. So, you know, I think there was 
um, a real shockwave through the industry when it was announced that Falls Festival won't be running this coming New Year's. Even some of the really crucially important uh, regional festivals like Groove in the Moo have been coming back, but in, in reduced capacities and formats. So um, all of which to say is there's simply less opportunities for developing artists to showcase their projects and, and cut their teeth. Um, yeah. All of this, I guess, is also compounded by the rise in the cost of living and inflation. And I think it's just a fact of life that entertainment is going to be one of the first things that people cut from their lives when times get tough. We rank a long way down after more essential items like groceries and utilities and petrol and medical expenses. And, and that you know puts us probably in the same category as things like uh, cinemas and, and other forms of entertainment. So uh, we are experiencing the flow on effects of tough times economically and, and recession. Um, but the last point that I wanted to touch on with respect to, to why it feels like it's hard for artists to kind of have, have that breakout moment um, and enter the scene and, and kind of commence the journey on their musical careers is that it feels like there's been a broader societal change that we're still coming to terms with. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's an entire generation of young people out there who came of age during a years long lockdown in Australia mm. that were never, they were never initiated into going out to pubs, to nightclubs, to music festivals and seeing live music, all of which felt like uh, kind of rites of passage into young adulthood for somebody my age. It's, it's simply like not in their playbook. It's not in their repertoire. They haven't been kind of absorbed into the, the fabric of this kind of stuff. Um, I guess the question is, how are we gonna navigate these challenges? Um, and for the most part, I think a lot of them are linked to economic recovery, which mm. won't happen overnight. Um, like many industries, we're gonna need to ride it out but with respect to that last point about shifting cultural values, um, I think it's become more vital than ever for us as an industry to fight tooth and nail at a policy level to ensure mm. that music is enshrined as a valuable and incredibly lucrative feature of Australian culture and Australian society, that protections are put in place to stem the bleeding any further, if that means, uh, you know, giving iconic music venues, uh, you know, heritage status and, and ensuring that there only can be, they can't be developed into apartments or mm. in the form of um, significant investments made by governments at all levels, like a council level, a state level, a federal level to counteract these long-term effects of the pandemic. Just like Australian society will uh, take those, those, I'll make those efforts to enshrine sport and, and the recognition of sport as such an important part of Australian culture and who, who, what it means to be Australian on a global stage. We need to make sure that music is painted with the same brush and we receive those same sorts of protections because I do think that we can get back to the place that we were pre-pandemic, but we can't let the industry deteriorate in all of these ways so dramatically that it becomes not you know not salvageable at some point 
Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's really, I would say the number one topic in, in the artist management community right now is, you know, many of us are managing extremely talented young artists, emerging artists, and the traditional pathways to success that have worked for us with other artists in the past are simply not available at the moment, or they are severely hampered. Um, mm. so, so that's tough. Um, now, uh, for and for other artists like Alice Ivy, who mm. had the good fortune of being fairly established before the pandemic, the biggest challenge over the past few years has been uh, to pivot to other activities and revenue streams in order to sustain themselves whilst live touring completely shut down. And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that here we are in May 2023 and the live touring landscape has by no means recovered. It, it might be it might be active, uh, but it would be a, a pretty big um, leap to say that it's back to anywhere near where it was in terms of the opportunities for artists and also the revenue that, that is being generated. I personally don't feel confident about either of my clients embarking on headline national tours at this point. Um, I've been going to probably more shows than ever in the past 12 months to actually just take the temperature of, out, of, of what's happening out there and look around the rooms and see who's there and try to get a mm. read on live music audiences. And what I'm seeing is quite shocking. You know, I'm seeing local artists that are household names playing venues that are probably half the capacity of where they were pre-pandemic and they're mm. only maybe 50 to 60 percent sold i'm uh i'm also seeing artists that are among the most played artists at triple j with really healthy healthy streaming number numbers you know only selling out or or in some cases not even selling out 200 to 300 cap rooms in major cities like sydney and melbourne and worse still you know, I'm seeing Australian artists with TikTok followers in the millions unable to sell out 100 to 200 cap rooms in Sydney and Melbourne, which just goes to show you that whilst you can have like some pretty significant pieces of the puzzle, there's clearly still a disconnect happening on a macro level that's preventing, yeah. like, it's preventing artists from achieving comprehensive success. Uh, across numerous key revenue streams, which mm. I believe is like a prerequisite for building long term a long term sustainable career in music. We can only function like it was like during the pandemic. We could get by on kind of a backup power mode with just two yeah. or three revenue streams going. But if we really want to do this for a lifetime, and that's obviously the goal for we have mm. for our artists, we need to be firing on all cylinders. And it's just clear to me that still, even now, some of those cylinders are faulty and some of them just aren't working at all. And, yeah. And we and we are still um, we are still struggling to to make a comeback. So I think, uh, you know, success in a vacuum can only last so long. We need those mm. other kind of lights to switch back on so we can have fully functional artists and businesses. Um, and yeah, I was just going to say, you know, reflecting on Alice Ivy, the other challenge uh, we were facing in that project is, uh, which is common among any artist that I think is at a point in their career where they're ready to export beyond Australia, 
is just the increased costs associated yeah. with international travel, airlines, hotels. And then you, ha you have the um, increased cost, increased regulation, and the really long waiting times for international visas, for travel mm. visas. Um, we also have crew shortages. I think that, you know, there was a mass exodus from the live music uh, sector during the pandemic. And what you have now is, you know, with the tour managers and front of house operators that have remained, you might be one of five or six major artists that they work with, and they've had to increase their costs. And again, we can't fault them for that. They're in high demand and they have, they're affected by all of the same things that um, mm. cost of living and inflation rises have, have, you know, have, like they've affected us all. But it makes it really difficult and really expensive to tour um, and leave Australia. And, and I think that, you know, us having such a poor exchange rate and reduced buying power of the Australian dollar right now um, is complicating that whole paradigm further. Um, yeah. I want to acknowledge that there are like really wonderful initiatives out there. And an artist mm. like Alice Ivy was really lucky to have access to something like the Sounds Australia Export Stimulus. Yeah. Um, you know, we have the EMDG, we have some Oz Council funding, and, and I think that on a state level, some states do really, really well. Um, I've always, by virtue of being in Melbourne, always had a very close relationship with Creative Victoria, who have supported um, both of my artists on many different past endeavours. We are lucky to have access to those things, but it's, it's no exaggeration to say that without them, we wouldn't be able to export music outside of Australia. And that, that again, um, goes to my earlier point about needing to reinforce that to governments and demonstrate not only the cultural value of Australian music, but also the financial value and, and how uh, lucrative this industry is and mm. how you know our biggest artists, be it uh, Tame Impala or uh, Tones and I or Kylie Minogue or Panau or Sia, they are flying the flag for Australia on the global stage. And that is as important as Australia performing well at the Olympic Games or Australian businesses. Uh, and and mm. we, we, need to, we need to be in that conversation um, when uh, governments are developing national cultural policies and, and budgets to ensure that we, at least in the short term, have access to funding that lets us combat all of these challenges and yeah. in the long and, and continues to continues to support us in the in the long term as well because it's such an important feature of Australian society. Yeah, exactly. And like kudos to you because you just basically summed up like the music industry in a nutshell and all the different challenges. I don't think I could have said that so eloquently. So well done. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I, Thank you. I, I was like firing off with all these like thoughts of questions I want to ask. And I think like as I think we mentioned before, like there could be a like a 10 part series to this conversation. Um, yeah. But I do want to cherry pick um, a few things. The first sure. one is I think like <clears throat> advocacy in um, like culture policy or music policy yeah. is definitely something that is talked about, particularly through the Australian Association of Artist Managers, yes. um, which has been really, really great to see. And it's a voice that has been heard a little bit further or encouraged mm. a bit more through things like Music Victoria and things like mm -hmm. that, where I'm based in um, Melbourne, Australia, which is great. But I do want to ask you, 
with all of those things going on, um, and you know, some of us may be getting a say, and some of us maybe not. Mm. I want I want to come back down to this like foundational issue of being able to break an artist and. Mm the acknowledgement that you sort of mentioned before is like so many of these income streams or even probably more so a lot of these spaces that were yeah. once utilized and so strong to break artists are now really struggling or finding a shift and i wanted to ask you do you feel like a lot of these locations like radio and media are struggling because of the the impact of COVID and mm. and and the fact that we don't that that they now don't have grants to help them still keep recovering because our governments don't currently support and value the arts um, mm. to the extent that's necessary or do you think that it's a cultural shift probably that there's like you can mm. argue both which one do you think stronger. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And it is definitely a combination of both. But I think that there's a pretty strong argument to suggest that some of these things, we they're, they're actually, they're not entirely new problems. They were perhaps, we were already seeing a decline in local media, local journalism, local music press pre-pandemic, um, you know, with some street press going fully digital, and others kind of cutting back permanent staff and relying more on volunteer journalism. I think that the poor ABC folks at the ABC are always seemingly, despite being you know the greatest media media organization in the country, always fighting for funding with every successive government, and and you know has unfortunately been uh, subject to various downsizing over the years. Um, these things were already existing problems and then when the pandemic came along it might have kind of been the final like the straw that broke the camel's back in some cases mm. um, we were already seeing a real consolidation of media with kind of large media organizations snapping up the existing brands out there that were working and the little independent ones kind of running out of steam and and people having to give up their passion which might have been operating a fantastic Australian music blog or an Australian music radio show on community radio and kind of, you know, I'm, I'm doing uh, scare quotes here, go get a real job yeah. because, it, because yeah. it wasn't paying the bills. And it's so sad because I think there's like, you know, we, we hear about brain drain all the time in other industries. Mm. And it's something that I've definitely seen with respect to the, the Australian music industry in the last few years mm. where, you just you come across some of the smartest most passionate people and we lose them to other industries and and you can't fault them because they want to earn a living at the end of the day but they're having to give up the thing that they're passionate about if that was a radio show or a music blog or managing a band or running a record label or being a or being a musician um and it's just really it's really heartbreaking and so i i think that maybe i'm leaning towards a cultural shift as being mm. the slightly bigger problem. Um, but it's certainly uh, a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Yeah. Well, realistically, I think for me, what you just highlighted was the fact that there's a cultural shift that's being impacted by the flow of money that yes. 
yeah. is like a result of a lack of funding. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, and I would say to you know your earlier point about a, you know a devaluation of music and arts and culture at a government level kind of yeah. has this trickle down effect where yeah. maybe those jobs are not remunerated as well. Um, they're not they're not uh, viewed in society as being on par with other professions like being a doctor or being a lawyer or being a pharmacist or all of these other things out there. It's, it's seen as something less than, which mm. is just kind of an, an, an unfortunate feature of Western culture at this point in history. And it might yeah. not always be the case. I think that, you know, arts and music um, has probably gone through ebbs and flows uh, societally for millennia. And yes. um, and it is interesting. I've heard some really out there takes in recent months uh, where people compare uh, the impact of the Black Plague on music and the impact and various things we can look back on historically and say, wow. yeah, this is not the first time music has kind of taken a nosedive, but it, it tends to make a comeback. At the end of the day, um, music and arts uh, existed a long time before business and commerce. And I yep. think that they are more human in, in some respect. They're more a uh, part and parcel of what humanity, what is. Um, and I have faith that they will uh, always be a, be a feature of, of human life. Um, but we certainly are com competing with a lot of other interests and, and the way uh, Western society at least is focused in this day and age is very much around economic gain and commerce and commerciality. So we are struggling in some of those respects at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Well, to sort of shift the conversation a bit, because I'm sure we could talk for hours on this topic, um, I'm wanting to pivot slightly and move into sure. the label world at Monarch. Um, yeah. What are some of the key marketing strategies in 2023 that you're rolling out within your role at Monarch? I love this question because traditionally my role at the label involved a lot of conventional marketing practices and techniques. Effectively, the label would sign artists overseas. I would match make them with suitable publicists, radio pluggers in Australia. We would purchase uh, digital advertising and advertising campaigns, street advertising, outdoor, outdoor ads. Uh, and I would obviously pitch directly to Australian DFPs and, and gatekeepers to try to um, get something going for the artist in this market. But I feel like in the last couple of years, or the last year really, maybe even the last six months, I've had a lot more freedom and flexibility to approach things in out of the box ways. And I wanna, um, I wanna shout out two different techniques that perhaps aren't so much traditionally associated with marketing. But uh, the first one is collaboration. And I think that like in an increasingly globalized music market where what we're seeing is artists kicking goals in their own backyards, but maybe having a really tough time breaking out of that market, it just feels like this incredible hack that we can pair two artists together and cross pollinate their audiences and, and also their, their media. So one of the projects I've been working on at Monarch in the last six months is with a, 
a Canadian producer from Vancouver called Sleepy Tom. And he, this is a great example of uh, the data informing how we approach the marketing um, as opposed to the other way around. Mm. You know, looking at Sleepy Tom's numbers, I noticed that there were three Australian cities in his top five cities globally, alongside, I think it was London and, and Los Angeles. And that's really unusual. Uh, he has a really big audience here, despite the fact that he didn't have a lot of media in Australia. But people were discovering his music one way or another on Spotify and Apple Music, and they were listening to it. Hmm. So I thought it might be an interesting experiment for him to collaborate with an Australian vocalist, um, being an electronic music producer, and see whether we could cross him over into uh, more traditional forms of media, radio, um, as well as things like DSPs in Australia. So um, I sent him a bunch of different ideas. Um, he came back to me and was absolutely besotted with a singer from Sydney called Nairi. And it was great timing for her because she had just released a album that was ARIA nominated, AMP nominated, and kind of was in that point in her cycle where she didn't have any new music uh, in the pipeline. So we, we got the two of them together on, on Zoom and what a wonderful tool Zoom is. And, and I think that maybe one of the silver linings of lockdowns was how we discovered how we can use these tools for things like remote writing mm. sessions, as opposed to which are you know, way more cost effective if your artists um, have the ability to, to get creative in that, in that moment. Um, and the two of them wrote a terrific song together that we released earlier in the year. Um, it, it achieved exactly what I envisaged. It was New Music Friday Australia. It was New Music Friday Canada. It was added to Triple J and Double J here. It was added to Canadian radio stations there. And the effects were Canadian artist was always opened up to uh, an Australian media landscape and an Australian artist was able was opened up exposed to a Canadian media landscape. And I hope that that is not just a, a one-off moment for either of them, that this is the spark that lets them continue to service those markets and grow within those markets. So whilst it's not um, something that we would traditionally associate with marketing, because it's actually happening at an A&R level, which is way earlier than, you know, marketing mm. is usually us creating all the content once the music is already done. We're actually kind of going a step earlier and saying, wait, 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 before you write music, we're noticing that you have a ton of listeners in Australia and we don't really, yeah. in some cases, don't really know why, but the data can be instructive of how we should um, shape the project. And and I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, I think that uh, I'm probably veering dangerously close to um, industry plant style, yeah. <laughs> style conversations, which people love to, I think our people are obsessed with on, on Twitter in the last couple of years. But, you know, it's important to stress that I think it only works when the connection between the two artists is authentic and mm. they have to really, but that doesn't, you know, rather than me trying to take a finished product and make it relevant to a whole new market, why don't we try to make it relevant from the get-go by virtue of who's cr contributed to it creatively? Yeah. It's gonna make it a lot easier for everybody. Um, so that's that's one thing that I wanted to, and, and you know, now we continue, I was, uh, the artist was so pleased that, and everyone is so pleased with the the outcomes from that collaboration that I've now got Sleepy Tom working with two other Australian vocalists. And hopefully there's gonna be a few more Australian collaborations 
on his next EP or album, and I'll continue to do some really quality work in this market for him, um, which at some point will lead to an opportunity to tour Australia, play Australian festivals, and like I said earlier, kind of um, kind of create a, a holistic version of success for, for his mm. project in, in this market. Um, the other one, which again, I think, not something we would traditionally associate with marketing is sync and licensing. Mm. Um, I, I think we we've always known um, the power of sync, as demonstrated yep. <laughs> by the the Kate Bush Stranger Things sync and and those sorts of stories that uh, you know go as far as to to make mainstream media headlines. Um, but you know, I just wanted to point out that like. There's an artist that I signed in 2022 to Monarch AU, which is the the label's uh, imprint in Australia. And um, we we whilst there are the signs are there at traditional uh, gatekeepers or tastemakers, like you know we've had the odd Spotify editorial playlist or a little bit of um, positive feedback from Triple J or Triple J on Earth. The real success story of this project has been sync and licensing. And in a really short period of time, um, this artist, Winifred from Townsville, has had two syncs on the television show Love Island UK, which yeah. has a really robust Spotify playlist associated with it. It's one of those programs where music is a really big feature of the show. She's mm. also had a sync um, in video game world um, on the Fortnite uh, video game Global Radio, which is wow. you know, something people listen to while they're, they're playing online. And then most recently, um, she's just landed a TV sync with a um, in a commercial for a major international beauty and fragrance brand. So whilst we're, if we look at some of the traditional metrics associated with this project, you might say, well, the streams are pretty low or the airplay is pretty low, which, you know, um, resultingly means uh, we haven't generated a bunch of revenue from the master. Behind the scenes, on the, in the sync world, this project has completely recouped itself and yeah, wow and and we are and now Winifred has just you know performed her first uh, international show in London last month uh, showcased at the great escape and is spending the next three weeks writing with various artists and producers in Amsterdam London uh, and, and throughout Europe as a result of some of the home runs that the project has hit in the sync and licensing world. So you realize that it's not always about streams and we know how um, streaming and airplay and these other sorts of things are remunerated. And mm. I think that like, given the choice, I would much rather have an artist that was doing bulk business in the sync and licensing world and making some real, generating some real revenue for their project versus somebody that had a few million streams on a track, which as we know, might have only uh, netted them some, you know, 10, 15, $20,000. So I just, it's, it's been a, uh, an interesting experiment because maybe it kind of goes against a lot of the traditional metrics we might associate with success. Mm. Record label, you know, love to see 
They love to see millions and millions of streams on tracks on Spotify and Apple Music. They love to see, um, you know, radio monitors reports with loads and loads of airplay. But I'm, I haven't yet delivered them that on this project, but I have shown them that the music is really good and we're able to reach audiences through video game media, through television mm. media, through advertising. Um, which we can see uh, the impact of in real time via apps like Shazam, um, yeah. which are you know directly connected to DSPs like Apple Music and Spotify. So I'm confident that in time we will get the uh, results at those more traditional metrics um, that uh, we associate with success. But in the meantime, the project is so financially healthy and the artist is pursuing music full time as a result of it. So I guess it's just a lesson that there are more than there's more than one pathway to reaching to market. And yeah. some pathways um, are just as effective as 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 uh, radio or, or Spotify and in some cases more lucrative at the same time. So that's been that's yes. been two things that have kind of I guess came to my think with respect to my role at the label. And, and the marketing, the, the different ways we can approach marketing on a per project basis. Yeah, I love both of those. And I think in particular, um, like collaborations get me really excited because there's a lot of conversation at the moment about geofencing and, yes. and, and funding and, and the cost of yes. being able to break into certain markets. Um, and what I think some, like, some people in the music industry have not quite cottoned on to is the fact that like you can actually be marketing within another territory before you've even gone and played mm. there um mm -hmm. all based off the data that like what yes. the data is showing us and yes. um also like the other uh, the trends within that territory as well um but there is this whole other concept of um as i like sort of mentioned geofencing which for those that don't know we'll try and sum it up from the very little that I know about it um but it's basically this concept that you um get geologically locked into your mm. area um and and your music is basically locked there um and that is caused by a lot of different ripple effects within the music industry but ma mainly most people think it's because of the influx of music and the fact that there's mm. just so much that it's so hard to break through mm -hmm. um and that's something that I've definitely seen this year as being a much wider topic. And I'm very yeah. fascinated to see what happens at conferences this year of, as to that sure. sort of conversation. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really love the approach that you have been taking of, you know, using mm. cross pollination of audiences to build, like break that geo fencing yes. as well as help like, first of all, create great music um, yeah. Yeah. and and then also help those artists find ways to maybe not with just one, one single but with multiple singles mm -hmm. to actually then justify going into further territories further than they would have been able to with their own, you know, off the back of their own, like, own yeah. music, basically. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that I have been meditating on in the last couple of years is I think that there was actually like a, there, okay, this is difficult to describe, but during the pandemic, when we were all locked down and international travel or even interstate travel wasn't possible, there was a lot of goodwill 
from people at radio and people in the media and people at Spotify and Apple Music to place more emphasis on local music to try to kind of boost people's spirits in the industry and, su and support the industry through a really tough time. And that's obviously a welcome thing, but there was mm. kind of an accidental flow on effect of that. And when that happened everywhere, globally at the same time and we had french media music media looking in their own backyard and, and putting french artists on a pedestal and the uk doing the same and germany doing the same and australia doing the same then what you got as, a, as an accidental kind of flow-on effect of that was really siloed music markets and yeah. they've become harder than ever and for all the reasons we discussed earlier with respect to some of the challenges an artist like alice ivy is facing around the increased costs to access those markets and ex export mm. your music it's just become like acute that the difficulty in getting your artist on geolocked or or, or on geofenced or however you want to um choose to express it so my association with collaboration has always is, is actually organic and goes a really long way back my first uh formal job in music i worked at a management company and independent record label in melbourne called forum five and one of the first artists that we signed was a singer from New Zealand called Kimbra. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone is pro probably knows Kimbra uh, globally yeah. um, due to one particularly popular collaboration called Somebody That I Used To Know with Gordon. Yeah. And I was uh, an assistant manager to Kimbra at that time, like a day-to-day -day manager, and was able to ride shotgun through that process and watch that unfold. And an, an amazing um, outcome for Kimbra throughout all of that is, you know, I don't think anybody anticipated that that song was going to have the global impact that it did at the time that it was written and recorded. And as a result of that, um, Gautier really wanted to bring Kimbra with him on his global tour to be able to perform that song live um, to audiences who were, were craving it. Now she was on her own trajectory. She had her own record out, which was, in incredibly successful in its own right so she mm. couldn't just drop everything and go on tour with him so you know the solution was for her to basically support him on a international tour with her full band and play a full set of her own music and then perform that wonderful duet that so many people um were enamored with and you know really i think it's fair to say that that song provided her with a pathway out of New Zealand and Australia and mm. into global markets. And as such, she's managed to maintain a really sustainable career in music in the US since since that point. So I would that was my first kind of um I guess uh experience of the power of collaboration. Mm. Um and then, you know, but by complete chance I came to work in about 2016, I came to work with a producer from Melbourne called Alice Ivy. She was largely producing instrumental music, electronic tracks. She used samples quite a lot. She used kind of found sounds. And um, she occasionally worked with uh, vocalists who were friends of hers. And, you know, we, uh, one of the first tours she went on uh, shortly after we started working together in an artist manager capacity was opening for a New South Wales singer called East. And the two of them hit it off on tour and the suggestion uh was made that the, they write together 
and they wrote a collaborative song which which became an Alice Ivy single called Get Me a Drink. And if I'm recalling correctly, I think that that may have even been Alice Ivy's first addition to Triple J in about early 2017. It kind of coincided with her showcasing at Big Sound and all of these other sorts of things. And it became a blueprint for how she wanted to write music moving forward. So um, the next single after that featured um, Kazo Oslo from Adelaide and Tim Dakota from Singapore. The one after that featured Brady Blackman from Sydney and, and so on and so forth. So the, the nature of her project became collaborative. She is a highly collaborative artist producer who kind of curates uh, vocalists from all walks of the music industry and different genres. And mm. she is the common thread among them. And then she, I guess she's also earned a reputation for um, platforming uh, a lot of lesser heard voices in music and artists that are drawn from more marginalized communities sometimes. Mm. Um, certainly on her last record, Don't Sleep, that that really felt like the case. So I guess we were, we've been doing, you know, incidentally, we've been doing this kind of collaboration thing for a long time, but it's, and it served us really well, but it's great timing and I think fortunate timing that at the point at which her profile has grown, that she is um, kind of, the, the project has enough weight that we can get her in the room with international artists it's becoming harder and harder for artists to export into other markets so alice is really lucky that in the last 12 months she spent um a long time writing in los angeles writing in mm. new york writing in london with high profile feature artists higher, higher profile than she's ever worked with before and i guess the philosophy and, and again i stress that the connection has to be authentic and mm. for, for it to work you can't just um you can't just put them together and expect the magic to happen so of the 40 50 60 songs that she composed overseas you know 12 have made the final cut and they are the, the 12 ones where there is a little bit of pixie dust in the in the studio and and everyone feels really really great both collaborators feel really enthusiastic and excited about their their co-creation um but the philosophy is that um we will be able to more effectively market her music into some of those gatekeepers, whether it's Spotify or Apple Music or radio in the UK market, in the US market, in the Canadian market, in the Japanese market, wherever we're targeting, because they're gonna have increased relevancy by virtue mm. of a local artist being on that track. And I think that, you know, if you're the sort of artist, I'm seeing some amazing collaborations out there that I wouldn't mm. predict. Dance, you know, electronic producers like Alice Ivy, it's kind of always been their thing, whether you're yeah. Calvin Harris or your Diplo or your Skrillex, like it's not, it's not unusual to see a collaboration there. But now I think we're seeing some really uh, novel forms of collaboration, collaboration yeah. in, punk, in punk music and rock music in all genres. Um, and I think it's only a good thing. And I think that, you know, we live in a, globalized society an increasingly globalized world um, we need to be targeting we need to think of the marketplace as one world as opposed to lots of discrete little territories because I think that that's kind of archaic if to break it up into little territories is kind of archaic and I think that you've only got to look at the global at the charts globally you'll mm. see that for the most part the same things reflected even 
artists like uh, BTS and K-pop artists in the in, in the charts globally. Um, I think it's going to continue heading in this direction, and we should keep uh, trying to uh, steer our artists in the direction of, of appealing to global music audiences as opposed to just what's in their own backyard. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think realistically what we're sort of coming across is that the fact that, like, collaborations aren't new. We've just no. found that a way to actually utilise the data in a yes. strategic way to yes. help us make an impact globally to therefore boost revenue streams but in a cheaper way than we've done ever yes. done before yeah 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 absolutely and again it is winding winding it back to kind of applying some of this uh strategic thinking at the anr stage as opposed mm. to, you know, I have a really tough time by virtue of being the only Australian employee at a global independent record label. A lot of product managers overseas send me their artists, albums and singles. And it, it's unquestionable that it's really, really good music. But the tough conversation that I have to have with the, some of those product managers and managers of the artists is that it's simply not relevant to this market. If there's no mm. tour dates, if there's no footprint in this market, if there's no existing audience, I'm going to have a really hard time selling it to media and DSPs and people, gatekeepers in this market because there's no relevance. But if you bring me a track that's a collaboration with an Australian artist and you're coming out for Blues Fest or Groove in the Moo or something next year, or you can show me data that there's tons of people on Instagram or TikTok in Melbourne or Perth or Sydney, then we're starting to build a case for why gatekeepers should curate this music and present it to a broader audience. Otherwise, it's really hard. Yeah, exactly. And I think that leads me to ask the question of you, um, what are you finding at the moment is the most cost-effective marketing trends that you're seeing work for most artists yes. globally, particularly when you're either doing that collaboration or you're mm. doing just your own music. Like what are you actually finding is connecting to actually build past that, the, the power of the collaboration? Yeah, well, look, I think that if for some artists, um, social media is always gonna be the first the first answer there. And, you know, if your artists are the sort of people and, and you know, I'm excited now that I'm working with some genuine Gen Z artist mm. but for whom uh, creating content creating video content for going live for using platforms like instagram and instagram reels and and tiktok is second nature or native to them uh it, it can be really uh cost effective and in many cases they are savvy enough to basically run their own platforms and uh we just boost the odd thing here and there but we don't have to really tell them what to create or when to post or how to caption it they just that stuff comes instinctively to them um so if they can do that that can be a wonderfully cost-effective way for them to basically like, supersede external media and just be their own broadcaster be their be their own write their own um press release i guess they get to just mm get on the soapbox and and sell themselves to audiences. Um, but I think it's also important that we acknowledge that not every artist is going to be able to do that. Some artists, for some artists there, it doesn't come naturally to them at all. And that's fine. And there shouldn't be an expectation that all artists in 2023 
are social media experts and yep. content and content creators and everything else. If they, if an artist comes to me and they love TikTok and they use it every day, then I see that as a bonus, not not a prerequisite. Um, if mm. they come to me and they say, I hate TikTok and I don't really want to use it at all, it's like, well, the answer is we're going to have to use it a little bit, but we're going to find a way for it to work for you and with you that you're comfortable with. And that might mean hiring a videographer and a photographer and a content creator and an editor and writing your captions with you and hiring a social media agency uh, to create a calendar for you and boosting content and so forth, like, so, so on and so forth. So it's not always cost effective. It can be quite expensive depending on yes. the level of, um, of I guess, uh, ability that your artist has and enthusiasm mm. for it but i think that that's kind of the obvious the obvious answer um secondly i just think editorial playlisting uh, and particularly algorithmic and personalized editorial playlisting on dsps mm. you know for me it's becoming hard either at the label or as a manager to justify, to always justify the costs associated with hiring publicists and radio pluggers. These services have not gone down in cost. The media mm. landscape has shrunk enormously. And as, we, as we've commented uh, on a number of times already, the cost of living and inflation has gone up. So to ask an artist, especially a developing artist, or even to ask the record label to pony up $3,000 for a publicist that might only achieve half a dozen pieces of of press if we're lucky or $3,000 per single for a radio plugger to achieve an ad at a radio station which let's face it is probably experiencing historically low listenership and we're, mm -hmm. and, we're and, it, and is 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 not as connected as it once was to a really robust festival scene, which is itself, you know, some kind of a state of recovery coming back to life. Um, it's hard to justify those costs when I, in my capacity as a label manager or an artist manager, can have a direct line of communication with someone like Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon Music or TikTok or, or YouTube Music and get achieve editorial playlisting, which doesn't come at any cost which is also monetized, however much uh, people want to groan about what the rates of remuneration are on streaming platforms. It is it is a monetized stream that does have the ability to reach a really large listenership. And the point that I wanted to make about why I love personalized editorial playlists and algorithmic playlists is that mm. I think that in the industry, and I'm guilty of this too, but we get really obsessed with these playlists that appear to like, profile an artist in a certain light having mm. new music friday i wouldn't be wonderful to have the cover of new music friday or have the top have something in the top 10 on new music friday or front left and um you know these things are nice undoubtedly they do raise the profile of an artist in the industry but they do kind of feel like vanity um playlists as well because they only last for one two weeks at most and the best outcome you're going to get is maybe somewhere between 10 and 40,000 streams. Now, mm. conversely, Alice Ivy has a track that was released in September 2019, if I'm recalling correctly, called Sunrise, featuring an, an artist from Toronto called Cadence Weapon. And that song was added to Workout Beats at that time, at the time of release. 
and it remains on that playlist to this day. So that song has been on one playlist for the last four years, which is a uh, personalized editorial playlist that people work out to, people run on treadmills to. And I would say at a guess, and you can go in the back end and see all of this data, which is, you know, the beauty of these platforms, I think that that one playlist has probably netted her something in the vicinity of three or four million streams. So wow. over the journey, you know, you can have the really, uh, the, the, the profiling in the industry to say, yeah, we ticked, the box has been ticked, we got New Music Friday, we got 40,000 streams out of it, or we got this workout beat, it's still on the playlist four, four years later, and it's probably earned upwards of twenty, thirty thousand dollars for the artists in royalties. That's what I'm excited about because that's mm. stuff that actually one of those things actually pays the bills. Um, the other can uh, kind of just feel like a vanity metric. Not to say that that's not important. I think that a combination of the two is going to be the the ideal outcome. But I do get really excited when, you know, I think that some of the artists with the healthiest streaming revenue are the ones that are on study playlists and focus playlists and workout playlists. Um, mm. And and that's not a bad thing if your artist fits into one of those genres. Um, so, yes, I, I think that that's a really cost effective way of um, of doing things. And then just to touch on a third one, which has been a real genuine lifesaver for my artists throughout the last couple of years and that's branded collaborations and branded partnerships mm, and yeah these have these have a marketing value because the brands tend to purchase media whether it's on their spot it's whether sorry whether it's on their instagram or it's on their tiktok or it's on their facebook and it's been boosted or they're buying street media at bus stops or tram stops or billboards mm. or it's going to be on television or you know, I, I drove past a giant billboard underneath a bridge in Richmond outside the corner hotel the other day for Mars. Yes. It was featuring a local rapper. And I thought, how cool is that? This rapper who's only at the emerging kind of end of their, you know, um, at the beginning of their career rather, would never be able to afford a, a billboard on a main street like that with that kind nice. of exposure. But the brand are bringing that, that money to the equation and and they are you know in turn promoting one another's products so not only are brand collaborations cost effective but they actually earn direct revenue your artists get paid to do these yeah and they the brands bring budget to it so again maybe not something we would conventionally associate with um uh marketing straight off the bat but right now I'm like, yeah, you know, if I was to recap those three things and, and my, I say to my artists, you know, um, how are we going to promote this new single, this new release of yours um, without breaking the bank? Well, we're going to work really smart. We're going to work hard and smart on social media and create a lot of video content. And we're going to boost things here or there in order to reach wider audiences. We're gonna focus on editorial playlisting, which doesn't cost us anything as long as we have the right connections and we can pitch successfully. It's really just comes down to your sales ability. And mm. we're gonna target branded collaborations, which are not only gonna uh, you know, expose you to audiences, but are gonna actually result in you being paid. So um, it's kind of, it's, it's almost the, the inverse of paying a publicist to get you something written and or, and or paying 
for media to write a, a piece of editorial on you. So those are the things that um, I think uh, we're trying to target at the moment to keep costs down. Yeah, definitely. And I totally agree across all three of those. I think the one that I found the most fascinating is that whole brand collaboration yeah. aspect and like how much, you know, beer companies and... Yeah. Um, you know, alcohol companies basically are, are getting behind sponsoring yes. shows in particular because they're like, oh, yeah. that's they're drinking anyway. We may as well, you know, yes. engage. And then like one of my favorite ones was like, like I felt like was outside of the box. And then I was like, it just makes sense. Was I just was at one of the you know big shopping centers and I saw a billboard with G Flip and Fitbit and I was like, yes. she's a drummer. Of course she's oh, using yes. a Fitbit consistently. Yeah. It's like. Oh my, goodness, oh my goodness. I think G-Flip has, is the poster artist for brand collaborations. They yeah. had such a successful run. I can, I can recall campaigns with everything from Kathmandu to Uber Eats to KFC to Fitbit and, and then some bonds. Um, so yeah, and honestly, brands came to our rescue when, when live mm. music completely shut down um social media was one of the only channels and avenues our artists had available we were quite literally locked in our homes so we were very limited in what we could do but we yeah. could still create content on our iphones and put it on social media and brands were the ones putting a hand up you know we did successful um brand collaborations with everything from red bull to new balance to nintendo to Shore microphones, to White Claw, Seltzer, um, and they just, you know, and that's just the tip of the iceberg with that, with yeah. Alice I, with Canadian Club, everything from, yeah, alcohol brands, lifestyle brands, increasingly things like non-alcoholic beer, um, Keeps Normal, people like that, yeah. um, clothing labels, and as long as we could create content, we could collaborate with them. And mm. those, um, those little projects uh, really kept the lights on for a, a period of time there where our access to uh, things like live touring were, were, were just completely shut off. So yeah. I think it was a real lesson for all of us. I think one of the biggest lessons of the last couple of years was really our over-reliance on live touring as, as a revenue stream. And yeah. I think a lot of people, and I was guilty of this too, were very content to say, yeah, recorded music is kind of dead. We don't really sell rec records anymore. Streaming and doesn't really make the same kind of revenue that CDs did before it. But at least live touring is healthier than ever. We're making more money than ever. There's more people going to festivals than ever before. And I read a, a quote in a novel a couple months ago um, that said something like, you know, if you ever come, if it ever comes to the point where it feels like the spigot is never going to turn off, that's probably when you should like pull your money out because it's about to stop. And I feel like just before the pandemic, maybe we had all are a little guilty of becoming too complacent to say, well, we kind of make all of our money from touring, but that's fine. Nothing's yeah. going to happen to touring. What could possibly happen to touring? And when the rug was pulled out underneath us, we, it was a real a wake up call for uh us needing to have more diverse businesses for our artists and more diverse a more diverse range of revenue streams in order to maintain a healthy balance and since brand collabs really moved into that space in a big way i think it's here to stay and it's something that mm. we want to continue to do and continue to grow um 
over time. And as, as someone else pointed out to me the other day, if we look at the wealthiest artists in the world, they didn't make their money from music. You know, Rihanna is a billionaire because of Savage Times Fenty and and there are their clothing lines. You know, Jay Z is a billionaire because of things like uh, Rockaware and the Forty Forty Club and and mm. all sorts of other business endeavors. And music can be a great way to raise revenue um, to basically fund your entrepreneurial uh, endeavors across a yeah. whole range of things. But you know, these 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 wealthiest artists at the very very top of the one percent. They made most of their music from other things. Sorry, they made most of their money from other things other than music. So, um, I think we'd be wise to uh, keep stay connected in that brand space and identify, mm. you know, Flip perfect example of somebody uh, with a really strong brand. And brands want to team up with other brands that have crossover and share the same values. And um, yeah, I guess. G Flip is at the intersection of a lot of different brands out there, and that's been really successful for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think like one thing that came up for me just then as you were talking, it's like we had a focus on live touring or live music, and realistically, what that actually was is a focus on a particular space that our audiences were. And I yes. think what we've realized is that our audiences don't just exist in that space, they exist in other spaces and are actually more active and yes. we can convert them into sales or into streams um, a lot easier and quicker if we actually, you know, target them in in those other locations. And I think like yeah. that is in particular what these brands are starting to see when we're doing collaborations. It's like we're actually, they are able to connect with our audiences which are sitting in spaces that mm, they can't mm -hmm. necessarily access without spending a bunch of money to have yeah. conversions on them and then it's the same vice versa of like we're now open to a, a wider range of audiences which is what we want to do it's like they, they want to niche their audience we want to expand our audience and i think like that's like that's why it will just continue to grow and, and continue to keep happening hey. Exactly. And it feels like the there is no ceiling on the sorts of fees um, and opportunities for artists to make money from branded collaborations. Um, I had lunch recently with the head of a brand agency in Melbourne that works with Alice Ivy. And I won't uh, name names for reasons of confidentiality, but they told me that a client of theirs who is an Australian musician uh, was recently offered the role of the being the face of a, of a major event and unfortunately they weren't able to do it because it conflicted with international touring commitments but the fee being offered for what was essentially a fortnight's work was 600k and Whoa. in th in this day and age i think you'd be hard pressed to find a record label or a publisher that was even going to uh offer you an advance of anywhere near that amount of money um, let alone an amount of money that didn't need to be recouped in any way. Yeah. So, you know, brand collaborations are possibly the most lucrative thing our artists can do and something that we should all aspire to. Yeah. And I think um, further on that, it get that sort of like knowledge sort of gets me excited about the other next depth into that which is yes. becoming brand ambassadors in or like faces of things 
um, or like brands in it, mm. not just in the traditional way that we're used to, but more so mm -hmm. in like the capacity that someone like Daniel Ricciardo, who's sitting from yeah. you know, in, a, in a sports realm, in a supercar realm, um, is now like the face of Optus and has actually yeah. like kept his career alive, even yes. though he's not technically racing anymore. Um, yeah. and, and is now like ba basically being like indoctrinated or like embedded into pop culture yes, um, and yes. getting invited to things like the Met Gala and things like that because of those yes. connections. Oh yeah, yeah. And I can think of a lot of artists out there that I'm probably more familiar with just because of their omnipresence on mm. social media or the media than I am at all familiar with their music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's yeah. like, I, I think there's a whole generation out there now that just um, connects Selena Gomez with her cooking than actually <laughs> Selena Gomez as an artist. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, it, it does. I, I was, Please, I, I was just going to add to that. I was like, and if anyone on this uh, like channel doesn't know what I'm referring to, just type into into YouTube Selena Gomez cooking, and you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. I I am yet to I'm yet to experience that myself. Uh, it's very it's very fascinating. She she can't cook, and she has a YouTube cooking channel where she cooks with other chefs um and like and does like a, a zoom call thing and they teach her how to cook a meal and they talk about certain yeah. things um and it's with, yeah, with it's very, varying funny. results i guess yes exactly it's it's, I, it's I also many memes. it's kind of the inverse <laughs> of what we say to our artists which is you know what are you good at what are your interests outside of music that we might be able to do maybe we should be asking them what are you really bad at what what yeah. are you willing to embarrass yourself learning how to do in a public in a public space uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah wonderful. exactly yeah um well we could keep talking for hours i'm sure but i do want to wrap up today's episode in asking you my age-old question on this podcast which is when you're 90 years old in a retirement home and wanting to brag to your room neighbor about what you uh -huh. did during your long life yes, what would yes. you like to say to them wow 90 years old i just turned 38 and I feel like I'm about 90 years old so yeah. if I do make it to, if I do make it to 90 I feel like I'm I'm gonna feel 200 um okay well um I I do have a really big goal um in in my career I have a number of goals but there's one that has been a goal of mine and, and I guess I think it's important for our artists and for us as managers and people who work in the industry as well to constantly reappraise our goals and and I'm a big fan of making goals on an annual basis and reviewing them and seeing which mm. goals I've achieved. And if I haven't achieved those goals, they they might carry over into the next year. And then I'm I'm always upping the ante and adding goals to that list. A major goal of mine in uh, 2020 was for Alice Ivy to be ARIA nominated. And we worked our butts off in that campaign that came out right in the middle of the pandemic. And she wound up receiving two nominations at the 2020 Arias, one for best dance release and, and, and one for engineer of the year. Now, it came to be known that in either of those categories, she was only the second female in Aria history to be nominated um, as an engineer of the year or, or best dance release. And it also came to our attention that in the case of best dance release um, has never been won by a female or female identifying artist in the 30 plus years of the of the arias. So I think that once we learned that, that became a 
very clear goal in both of our minds for the project. We Next time around, and we are just about to go into cycle on the third Alex Ivy album, the goal is not simply to be Aria nominated, which was, you know, I think a massive compliment in of itself for her to be named among some of her biggest influences, people like the Avalanches and, and Kevin Parker, and to be side, side by side with them at some of those um, those awards by the by the end of the album cycle. But next time around, we want to make history, and and not just for the project. I think it's really important from that perspective of that you know you can't be what you can't see kind of mm. phenomenon with respect to di diversity in music. It is shameful that a female artist, given how many great female artists and dance musicians and electronic musicians exist in Australia, it is shameful that that aria has never been won by a female artist. So that is absolutely our mission. And I would love to be able to say that we, we broke that glass ceiling with this project um, because I feel like we have a genuine shot at it. Um, outside of that, and I know it sounds corny, but I just, I get pleasure from feeling like I played a supporting role in being able to uh, enable somebody to chase their dreams. And mm -hmm. I think that most of us who work in music probably either started as musicians ourselves at some point, or we're really big music fans. And, and either way, we get a really big kick out of helping people do the things that we didn't do ourselves. And it's just become, you know, it's really genuinely heartwarming for me um, to see my artists be able to quit their day jobs and do music full time and chase their dreams and achieve their goals. And, and on a larger scale, kind of feel like you're one of the many, many architects of culture, of music and global culture um and i think that's really special you know i hope that one day i'm i play i have a hand in some song that everybody knows and i can uh, i can say yeah you know that song well yeah i, I helped that artist make that song or you know i think it's one it's a wonderful feeling when um people contact our artists and they say i just wanted to let you know that um i actually met my partner at your gig and when we got married we walked down that aisle to this song of yours and you just realize you're going to be a part of those persons those people's lives and their stories forever and mm. you, you really begin to appreciate like actually how deeply embedded art and music is in our culture and the fabric of, of who we are as, as people and humans and just being able to honestly be play be a facilitator and play a supporting role in helping people create, helping really talented people create things and achieve their dreams and make great art is just, you know, makes me enormously proud. And, and, and also drives me, and kind of gets me up in the morning and gets me through the to-do list and gets me through the inbox and all of the less glamorous things that yeah. we have to do as artist managers. It's not always the standing side of stage at Splendor in the Draft and watching crowds uh, scream at your audiences. Mostly, um, so crowds scream at your artists. It's it's mostly doing incredibly mundane tasks like reorganizing Google Drives and filling out yeah. and copy and going back and forth with lawyers on um, markups for artist side releases and stuff. And it's it's uh, enough to make you want to pull your hair out. But the end yeah. result is worth it.
so worth it. And I love those goals. And I, I love how you first uh, framed the fact that it can be so important to uh, create goals every year. And that's something that definitely on this podcast, we've done quite a few episodes on already. Um, because I completely agree. It's just it, like, it can help you reaffirm why you're doing it, which can yes. sometimes be in the import, like in, in, in the music industry, one of the most important things that you can do to yes. not only just check yourself and check, yeah. you know, uh, am I actually building something in this industry that's actually helping, but mm. also to validate why you're doing it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's a huge motivator for the artists and it's a huge motivator for us as well. And I think it's really, now that I've been doing this for, you know, I've, I've been working in the industry for 15 years. I've been, I've run Vice Royalty for the past 10 or 11 years. Um, I've been managing Alice Ivy for now, geez, like six, seven, seven years. It is fascinating to go back and look at some of those early goals lists that mm. we drafted and how cute they were. <laughs> when the height of what we had imagined for the project was getting added to radio or something like that or selling out a headline show and then now it, it, it's humbling it gives you perspective and it also mm. you're absolutely right it validates you and go and you know there is no one of the greatest things about music is i feel like there is no right and wrong way to go about it it yeah. also makes it one of the most challenging things about music because you could read uh, 10 different how to navigate music industry books and they're all going to give you different advice based on people's subjective experience of music um, but it can be really validating to look back at those goals and say well we must kind of know what we're doing because yeah. we have been ticking the boxes and maybe you're not always ticking them as fast or as fully as as you want to but you just keep on striving and it's it's a really great um, source of motivation for both uh, us in the industry and the artists themselves. And yeah, a, a, a really great practice. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think everyone's going to get such a wealth of, of knowledge and understanding and probably a lot more questions about the music industry from this. Um, so it's been, it's been very fun. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed um, our conversation. And, you know, like I said, I think we have our heads buried in the inbox so deeply sometimes. We don't always take time to stop and meditate on the things that we're actually doing and the changes going on around us. So um, talking to you, I think, has provided me with a lot of clarity. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you really made me... Uh, I had to had to ponder and uh, meditate on a few of those questions, and and now I feel like I have a lot more clarity for what I'm doing as well. So thank you. You've got to love collaboration, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. Once the collaboration strikes again. Yeah, I'm just gonna just call this episode collaboration. Full stop. <laughs> uh, too funny. <laughs>